Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin Campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Kaspard and Holden Turner. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of students, staff, and community members. For this episode, we got together with Amanda Cassano and Sunshine Eaton, who are the co-leaders of the Native American Students Association, or NASA for short as well as Leif Maynard. He's the partnership's lead for the Bowdoin Hub of the Sunrise Movement. We discuss each organization's recent programming activities and how they've adapted to COVID, as well as how they've engaged with their respective but overlapping issues on both a national and local level. We talk about what student leadership, building community, and garnering visibility means to them, among other topics. We hope you enjoy. Um, okay, let's just hop in. Can you guys like briefly introduce your respective groups and kind of your mission? We, Amanda or Sunshine, if you want to start. Sure. So Sunshine and I, Amanda Cassano, we're the uh, co-leaders for the Native American Students Association at Bowdoin College. We've been in this position for three years now, and um, we've really enjoyed leading the group and just, you know, creating a community where people and express their indigeneity, um, and we can celebrate our own traditions. Leif, do you want to go ahead? Um, my name is Leif. I am the partnerships lead for Sunrise Bowdoin, um, and we are a climate justice advocacy group um, affiliated with the national Sunrise Movement, um, and we're the Bowdoin hub of the Sunrise Movement, and we are um, an organizing group focused on environmental justice and um, intersectional activism that is centered around um, passing um, climate policy that is structural in nature and not just um, one and done solutions. And we really understand climate issues as um, racial justice issues and as um, justice issues and not just um, environmental issues. And we try to focus humans in our climate advocacy and not just the polar bears in the Arctic. Um, this is a messaging shift that needs to happen and is increasingly happening. So for each of you, why is it important for you to be active in these groups? And maybe Amanda or Sunshine, you can go first. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why, did you say active in this group? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of our main missions um, being NASA leaders and being part of NASA is to um, create a community where Native students um, feel very welcomed. And I think it's very important to be active is so we could be able to um, bring awareness to Native American issues, as well as create a community that um, students are comfortable in at Bowdoin. Yeah, I would just agree with everything Sunshine said. Our primary goal as, as NASA is to support uh, other Indigenous students on campus. Bowdoin doesn't have any Indigenous faculty or staff members, so we're really just here for each other. Um, and often coming from your indigenous homelands and then coming to a place like Bowdoin where there just aren't the same resources, you don't have your family around to support you. Um, it can be a bit daunting. So having that support network is really important. But then also what falls into our, our responsibilities and partly, partly what we really enjoy about doing our work is educating the campus um, about some of our activities, um, about our issues that face our communities. Uh, for instance, in the past, we've had um, 
screenings of documentaries by Indigenous filmmakers like Dawnland. Um, we've done events that talked about issues that are going on in Indian country today, like land acknowledgements and debating how useful they are for beginning conversations about indigeneity. So we hope to continue that type of work into the future. And from what we've seen over the past three years, having those conversations is really paying off because we're finding more people are feeling comfortable engaging with topics around indigeneity, uh, where before they might not have had any place to go off from. And we're hoping to see that expand in the future. Maybe somebody who would not have felt comfortable talking about giving land acknowledgements before um, might feel more comfortable talking about, well, okay, now we know where the land is from. How are we going to reciprocate to the people who that land was stolen from? Those are really tough conversations that need to happen. Yeah, I can, I can jump off of that. Um, I think that just to, to Amanda's point, I think that also in the world of climate activism, there's been a lot of, I think, a deepening of understanding this year that Indigenous rights and Indigenous issues are, are just integral to the climate um, activist cause and and like in indigenous knowledge is going to be integral to understanding how we can move forward and I think that in Sunrise we've really tried to center that um, and I know that the Sunrise National Movement just we have like our six principles that guide our work um, and they just revise the principles to include um, more like understanding of indigenous land sovereignty and then also abolitionist um, movement building and um, kind of holding space for that. I think that for me, Sunrise has been, I've, I've been in, into climate activism since I was in high school. I think that I value the forward and future facing um, kind of spirit of climate activism. I think that it's all about imagining futures where um, there is justice and there is sustainability um, and all of these things are connected in a way that is really important to understand as uplifting and necessary um, for our, our survival. But um, I think that so far this, this year, especially Sunrise Bowden has really taken off. We were organizing a lot ahead of the election. We kind of, um, that was our main focus this fall for obvious reasons. Um, so we uh, did a lot of friend to friend organizing, which is where you're, you're asking your friends to make sure that they're voting, um, that they're registered and then using that kind of language and that messaging around the election to then bring people into the movement for climate justice in, in general. We did a Chalk the Quad event, which we had done last year also with some first years. Um, and we had some great, some great first years joining Sunrise, uh, which was really cool to see that we could kind of bridge that divide between off-campus and on-campus people this semester. And then we had uh, and a, we had an action that was trying to hold Susan Collins accountable to her vote against the um, Supreme Court justice nomination this year. She, she didn't vote for Amy Coney Barrett for obvious political reasons, but we, it was really great to be in community around that action um, because this year, like many activist organizations, we're, we're struggling to see how we can both take this opportunity to understand digital organizing more, but then also it's hard to not be in physical community um, as much. But we, so we were really organizing ahead of the election and now we're trying to pivot to, to kind of creating coalitions and we're hoping to bring some speakers to campus in the coming months. Uh, and yeah, to educate and then to organize, um, to pressure Biden to have a more liberal 
um, and, and climate focused uh, administration, which is, which is already happening, but needs to happen more. Yeah. And what's really cool about, I think, Sunrise is that we have this national infrastructure that we can tap into. I know some people who are organizing I've, through Sunrise. I've met a lot of people across the country who kind of share my, my beliefs around climate justice and organizing. And I've just learned there's so, there's a wealth of knowledge just around organizing as a topic and as a principle and how to like organize people to, to do amazing things together and fight for the causes they believe in. Uh, and I think I've just really learned about that year more, more than, more than any other. So we, this is kind of the reason why we've organized this event is because it seems like these two groups have some fantastic overlapping interests. So um, Amanda and Sunshine, you recently moderated the event with Representative Holland from New Mexico. And on, on the same note, um, National Sunrise recently um, put forward Representative Holland as their choice for Secretary of the Interior under Biden. For Sunshine and Amanda, what are your reflections from the event and what about her talk really stuck with you? I think everything Deb Holland said needed to be heard once over, twice over, all the time. It's, it's basically everything she said resonates with what a lot of indigenous activists uh, in environmentalism, in uh, climate justice, in uh, racial justice have been saying for years and years. And that's why it's so important that we have a person like Deb Holland in office because she her voice is being heard in spaces where Indigenous voices have not been listened to in the past. And especially that's why it's so critical that she's being considered for this position of Secretary of the Interior. If you maybe maybe you don't know, but the Secretary of the Interior oversees offices that include um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, and so there's never in the past been an Indigenous Secretary of the Interior. Having a person who knows about Indian country, who is from Indian country who knows about the issues that um, are being faced by her community and by other related communities uh, is just so critical because she is probably our, our biggest advocate for issues like um, protecting sacred sites, you know, making sure that uh, police brutality is uh, put in check, um, also making sure that uh, we have plans for the future so that future generations are able to live on the land and don't suffer from diseases that are caused by nuclear uh, waste that is being uh, deposited on tribal lands. Yeah, I agree with Amanda and everything she said. And I think Representative Holland's talk was just so empowering um, to a lot of Native youth because um, we had some a couple of people who um, were not actually from campus, but are Native students who attended it. And um, some of the feedback that I got back from that was that it was just um, so great to see a Native woman, especially um, with this high leadership role in representing our people like that. And so I think it was just very in inspirational to others, other Natives who uh, did not see that, like um, we were able to hold uh, leadership positions like that. And I, I'm so happy that she's being considered for the um, Department of Interior. It's just I'm just like watching the news every day just to see if there's any updates on it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, we, I was super, super glad to see that um, endorsement from Sunrise. You can go on to climatemandate.org. There's a really cool website that um, shows all of Sunrise's and also climate and also the Justice Democrats picks for different cabinet positions. Um, and yeah, I think that 
Deb Hallen, I, I unfortunately wasn't able to make the talk. I was amazed that you guys brought her to campus. That was incredible. Thank you so much for doing that. I think Bowdoin needs more speakers, um, high profile speakers who can speak to progressive issues and understand these communities in a way that um, a lot of people on the Bowdoin campus maybe don't and don't have expertise to talk about. I think that just the intersection of indigenous rights issues and climate issues, um, I think that Deb Holland really captures that, not just because she is indigenous, but because she has fought for climate justice and climate related issues her entire time in office. Um, she um, has been a fierce ally fighting for renewable energy job creation in, as her, in her position as um, representative and on the um, House Natural Resource Committee. Um, and she's just really shown that she she has what it takes and she understands exactly what she could do as Secretary of the Interior to fight fossil fuel corporations and also just have a place that is so necessary as an indigenous woman in the federal government. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see that. I think that of any position that Biden could pick that maybe um, is from this list, I think that she she is the most realistic in a way, and I think that she's the most necessary in a, in a way. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he what he chooses. Just kind of going off of that, it seems like Doug Holland is a role model for you guys. Can you talk more about what some of your role models are in this like kind of work? Like who are some people that you look up to and want to like model your work on? Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, so one person that I'm always finding myself looking back on as a leader for NASA is Olivia Moore. And Olivia started NASA at Bowdoin in 2009. Um, it was a really small group of indigenous students at Bowdoin at the time, it still is. Uh, but she took the first step of making that, that hard beginning of starting a group. Today, Olivia, uh, who is a member of the Penobscot Nation in Maine, she runs the uh, Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Collective, which is a group of Wabanaki uh, community members who come together and uh, they, they run a tribal apothecary. So they make medicines that go around uh, to different tribal members who are ill. And that's really important right now because of COVID-19. They also do food drives, um, so they get resources to people who meet them in the community. And she's just overall really well connected with um, her community and making sure that if there's an issue, she finds a way to address it, uh, to bring people together and uh, find solutions. And so I think that she's just an amazing person. I'm so glad that I, we have the opportunity to work with her um, you know, in the past, we, uh, when we were on campus at Bowdoin, we'd often go to this uh, house that was in Durham uh, with Heather Augustine, who's also a Penobscot tribal member. And we would just, you know, enjoy a really good meal with a lot of tribal members there and talk about things that are going on in our lives. And I was always really enjoying talking to Heather and Olivia, the two of them, because they were always so supportive and they still are, but all of the work we're doing at NASA uh, now. Sunshine Relief, do you have any role models for stewardship or activism that you'd like to speak about? Yeah, uh, of course, Deb Holland, <laughs> just because she's also from New Mexico and has like a similar background that I'm coming from. But also, I think our other first US um, Congress representative, um, Sharice Davis, she's a role model to me and because she's younger too, because she understands um, a little bit more of the younger generation and what they're coming from, but she also has similar views as Deb Holland. And uh, that's really empowering to see both two 
strong women native leaders in these high positions. I think they're, they both look towards the youth. I didn't mean to say that she was younger. I just see her as a, a little bit younger person. And I just uh, like following her, especially on Instagram too, because um, she used to be like a, a, a MAA fighter. And so uh, that's, I thought that was so cool. And that, that, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I remember in her um, campaign video, she did this awesome film of her doing MMA and um, like how it connected to issues that were going on in the community and how she's going to defend her. It was just so awesome. I love that video. That's, cool. that's amazing. I, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I will say that um, one, of, one of my personal role models on the Bowdoin campus in relation to activism is Karen Milliken. She's been amazing. I'm sure you guys, you guys all know Karen. She kind of was instrumental in, in helping Bowdoin Climate Action become Sunrise um, like last year. And uh, she's just a, a wonderful human, an excellent organizer. She, she's really, she has so much humility. And I think that that is like really key to organizing. Um, and I have learned so much from her uh, and she, the way that she brings people together um, and is, and can speak about why these issues matter to her because storytelling is so important to activism of any kind and, and community building in any, in any community. And also, I think that we've been really impressed with Chloe Maxman, who just won her Senate race um, for, for Maine State Senate. Uh, she has been a climate champion in the Maine, in the Maine House um, for quite some time. We endorsed her this cycle, and she won against a Republican incumbent. Um, and she won on this platform of radical progressive policies that are very, but, but not in a way that's like top-down Democratic Party. It was just from the community, what she was feeling and hearing from her community. Um, and then just supporting those policies and fighting for those policies in a really, in a really authentic way. And I think that she provides a model for how politics should be done and especially related to climate issues. She's been just connecting climate issues with all other issues in her district related to poverty and homelessness. And, and I think that her model of deep organizing that she used at to win her election, which was actually like aiding elders in, in the time of COVID um, and, and then help and just advocacy and organizing a campaign through actually helping people, whereas just spending money on ads, which is what some other politicians in Maine might've done who, who lost their races at a high profile. I think that Chloe Maxman is a model for us as organizers, how she is able to bring in community issues to electoral politics, which I think is something that can kind of get lost in translation. And I'll also say that for me personally, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, she's, um, she's the architect of the Green New Deal. She's, a, she's the leader of New Consensus, which is a um, policy think tank. Um, and she basically wrote the Green New Deal. Um, and I got to see her speak at Amherst College two years ago. Um, and she is just so charismatic and can speak to climate issues, but also relating them directly to like economic issues. She did a really cool explainer of why a jobs guarantee is actually required in the Green New Deal. Like a lot of conservatives say that the Green New Deal is just a hodgepodge of um, progressive wish list items, but actually you need this many people employed by the federal government to enact the, the infrastructure change that is gonna be needed to transition the US to 100% renewable energy. Anyways, I just, I really admire that she is able to communicate um, complex policy issues um, in a way that's really founded in just human connection. 
I think that that's kind of a theme that I, I really admire and that is so necessary in this in this time as we try to really take advantage of moving forward and on climate issues and issues of racial and environmental justice. So Leif, I, I've heard you mention Green New Deal, but also this idea of, of consensus and deep organizing. Do those fit into what you would envision for a political future in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, this, this is a great question. I actually, I feel like this year I've, I have really undergone a, a transition in how I think about organizing. And I, I used to be very much like top down institutionalist or organize electoral politics is everything. I think that what I've increasingly come to see in relation, I think that this comes directly from groups like, like what NASA is doing and other groups in terms of how Sunrise has related to those groups and has learned from those groups is that electoral organizing isn't everything. Mutual aid networks have been shown to just be incredible organizing tools and actually supporting community members in times of need. So I, and also state politics, which is what I, I just talked about with Chloe, um, kind of these more from the bottom up organizing solutions and, and deep organizing plays into that is that the foundation of politics is, is the individual human and just human connection. And I think that that can be lost when we have party politics taking over um, in the US and just so much money being poured into these election cycles. Honestly, I think that we saw really great youth participation this election cycle. Um, and that's and that's wonderful. And there were a lot of groups that were focused on kind of organizing young people. Um, but what Sunrise really tried to do and what I think and how this relates to your question is that what Sunrise is trying to do is trying to really situate youth involvement in politics and what in the issues they care about. It's not just go and vote because it's your civic duty and like you should. It's like go and vote because your future is at stake and what do you care about and then use you know, translate that to your vote and translate that to your vote on in local politics just as much as national politics. Um, and like this sustained organizing, this deep organizing that's about people um, and, and aid and helping each other out that can then translate to electoral politics. But the first step is really um, community building. And so, yeah, I think that that is the political future I see. And I think that it'll start on a state and local level. Um, and if we can get it there more and more then we can work our way up and um, that's why we've really focused on endorsing local candidates in Maine races. We also endorsed Maddie Dotry, and we've been in communication with her. She's the new Maine State Senate rep yeah. for Brun the Brunswick area. Yeah, and she's awesome. Um, so yeah, we're, we're really excited about state organizing in Maine. Commander Sunshine, do you have any responses to that or any other thoughts about political futures? Yeah, I think it's just such an interesting idea as an Indigenous person to think about a political future. But the first step in order to reach that process really to, is to reimagine how we view ourselves today. Um, because a lot of indigenous communities were still dealing with the mainstream, um, trying to impress this idea of like a romanticized indigenous person onto who we are, which is not how we want to see ourselves or who we are. And then we're also confronted with the issue of erasure. We, there's a lot of people who are still, you know, entrenched with this idea that indigenous people don't exist anymore. And we need to really um, jump over those hurdles and convince people that we are here. Um, we make a huge impact in our communities um, and we're making a huge impact in our government too. And so, you know, we need to really alter those mainstream Americans ideas of what an indigenous person is before we can even begin to imagine our futures. But I think once that is achieved, once we're able to convince people um, and the right people that 
we have a strong identity. We have a beautiful future that we can imagine for ourselves. And that starts with returning land to indigenous people. And that really connects to a lot of what Leaf, uh, his work is around. Um, and I think you would agree with me, Leaf, because indigenous people, when we, we're stewarding the lands, um, we're following a lot of the, the same traditions and you know a lot of the same environmental um, policies that are being enacted today with you know reflecting on, oh, well, indigenous people have been doing this for so many centuries, so many millennium, it's actually really working well for the land. Why, why don't we go back and use that? And I think one of the clearest examples of that would be controlled burning in California. Um, you know, in the past decades, we've seen a huge increase in the number of forest fires in um, the Northwest to the, the Southwest region. Oh, more recently, uh, experts have been considering the idea, well, you know, indigenous people in the region have long been using controlled burning in order to uh, limit the spread of forest fires. And so now this a new idea is being put forward and uh, in a lot of cases is being found to be very useful and very effective. I just going back to like the earlier question about role models and in like stewardship and activism. I find it really interesting that you guys both talk about people who are like very closely involved with you and people who are a little bit more distant. Like I find that really inspiring and exciting to see that people like that you work with on a daily basis or that you know quite well are like inspiring to you like I find that really exciting but more broadly speaking I was wondering if we could talk about what sustainability means to you what that term means and how you interpret that when I first hear the word sustainability the first thing that comes to mind is like first like natural resources the environment um making sure our, our world and environment is going to be, be here for next generations and for our, our future kids and, and grandkids and stuff like that. That's, that's one of the first things that come to my mind. But when I think more generally towards like Native people and sustainability is like more thinking about like sustaining and making sure that our, our culture and our people are alive still for all these next future generations. And, and that means like our language and our traditional practices and things like that. And, and yeah. Yeah, in Haudenosaunee culture, we have this phrase that we like to use called seven generations. And what that's really referring to is the number of generations your life can touch. So that's you, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your kids, your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And the reason that we bring this up so often is because you're always wanting to think about, well, what actions am I taking right now will have an impact on my kids' generation, my grandkids' generation, my great-grandkids. We should always be thinking about what is what we're doing right now? What, what impact will it have for the future? And I think that model of sustainability is what we need in, order, in the future in order to make sure that our kids have a sustainable, a sustainable life, that people have access and equitable access to water, have equitable access to homes, have equitable access to everything you need to sustain life. Sustainability is really just the indigenous way of living. Yeah, that really resonated with me and how we talk about sustainability in Sunrise and just both what Sunshine and, and you, Amanda, were saying and how you framed it as not just about natural resources, but about humans and about human connection and um, culture and and the right to sustain identities is is just integral and so important to 
the definition of sustainability that that I use and that Sunrise uses. Yeah, sustainability for me is is less about and or it's it's not less about it's all it's about everything it's and everything is is intertwined and you can't disconnect um, the environment from the the people who inhabit it and who understand it and who we have we we take advantage of it every day i think that also sustainability means creating systems that are not oppressive um, and systems that are sustainable in terms of like mental health and creating communities that are sustainable and not not oppressive and not violent and we so much of just the systems that are in place right now are so unsustainable in so many ways not just in terms of natural resources um, and we I think we kind of see that we feel that we're like teetering on the edge of of disaster in so many ways right now and I think that that just goes to the fact that we that not much of the systems that are, are in place right now are sustainable. And I think that this really gets to exactly why it's so important to look to indigenous knowledge because it literally, like there was so much time when, when those systems were literally sustainable um, and continue to be in so many places. And it's just, this is why you can't separate that work from climate organizing. I think increasingly people are realizing that, but it's taken a long time. The environmental movement has been so blind to indigenous communities and indigenous organizing for such a long time. And that was that was the worst mistake of the climate movement, um, just technically because there's so much knowledge to be gained and so much to learn. And also just in terms of the, the right to that space that indigenous communities had as whose land it is. That's why that this conversation is so important that it's happening between NASA and Sunrise. I've got a question for Sunshine. Sunshine, you were talking about language and I've always been fascinated by language a little bit because I think there's such a connection between how we think about something and the language and the environments in which we express it. Do you feel like that there's parts of one language or another, like the modern language that we use to describe environments, that resonates more with you? Yeah, so I speak I want to say three different languages, and that um, English Tewa, which comes from my Tsuki Pueblo side, and a little bit of Lakota. So, but in my household, um, Tewa is uh, is the second most spoken language within my um, family. And I I do think in our language, there's more that could be said that can't be translated into um, English that is uh, more powerful um, and that relates to the environment and just, it just goes more deep. In my language, there's there's this phrase that's called, that said, um, and that could relate to almost anything, um, but it's just to, it kind of translates to like love and care for one another and all, all things. And so when we go into mind with um, anything, we, we always think about that phrase and to care for the environment, just the way we would care for one another. Thank you. A lot of your work seems to be around like building community and like creating space to talk about certain issues that are are important to you. And I'm I'm wondering how you guys have adapted to COVID and how it has also created like certain opportunities for you to, I don't know, like create events that maybe couldn't really happen in person anyways. We definitely we spent all of the summer kind of thinking about that. I think, first of all, we had an event this summer with Bowdoin Democrats, um, which was related to defunding the police. 
um, and imagining different systems of uh, imagining abolitionist movements in Maine specifically. We had a great panel of three speakers from around Maine, um, the ACLU um, and other, other groups. And I think that we were able to do that in the summer over Zoom um, and respond to that important need at that time, which we couldn't have done if we weren't on campus, if we were on campus. And um, we, we had like 60 people there also, which wouldn't have happened if we were on campus, quite honestly. So I think that there is opportunity in just how easy it is to join Zoom events and how, how it can happen. You can organize them from wherever and, and whenever. We did take advantage of the fact that we had first years on campus who were affiliated with Sunrise and we were able to kind of use that to, for them to create their own community on campus and then also to still maintain kind of activism presence on Bowdoin's campus, even if it's just first years there. And then for friend to friend organizing, we could still do that with everything being virtual and we hosted events virtually. Um, and I think that in a way, you know, people, people are really craving community right now. I think we saw kind of the election and organizing become, for some people, a way to create that community in the absence of physical community, um, which was really cool to see. And there's still a lot of challenges that need to be worked out in terms of like digital organizing. We tried our best and I think that we, we did give some people more community and a sense of being in connection with people um, when that is so lacking right now. Yeah, I think with uh, NASA's events for Native Heritage Month this past um, November, we were able to engage with speakers who it would have been much more difficult for us to reach out to previously. Um, but because we were reaching out through a virtual platform, it became a lot more accessible to suddenly to not just uh, Bowdoin students, but community members um, and people that we're close to that are really engaged with these issues. I think one of the downsides of virtual engagement, as I'm sure a lot of people have um, encountered personally, is you don't really get the same level of connection um, as you might be craving. Um, and so, and although we were able to bring wonderful, wonderful people, I think it was really difficult for us to engage with our first year class, especially um, because most of them are on campus and a lot of our leadership is off campus. I, I think in the future, that's something that we want to make up for when we're all together again. We need to find opportunities to get to know each other better and rebuild that connection. Yeah, going off of what Amanda said, I did think it was pretty difficult to um, connect with the first years as much as we wanted to. We were able to still do some connecting through like our our meetings, but uh, some of the things we like to do within NASA is like cook traditional foods and just have like get togethers during our meetings to just have a conversation, which was um, was not possible this year, but hopefully within the um, next coming years that we could um, still do some similar things like that. Being remote, I think something that was really, really cool that we're able to do was do more reaching out to people, like Amanda said, um, to people we couldn't otherwise do. And it's like this, this semester, we also have some more um, events that we have planned for NASA, such as the um, the Bowdoin NASA alumni meeting. So we're meeting with some NASA alumni and having a conversation with them. And I think that would have been not as easy to do if um, we're trying to bring them all to campus at once, just because uh, people have our busy lives and, and things. 
like that. And then another thing we're doing is um, we're reaching out to a couple of um, native schools uh, around the country uh, to, to show those native students what Bowdoin is like and to just talk about our experiences and recruit more uh, native students to our campus because that's one of the ways we're gonna get more native support is if we get more native students on campus and showing that there are native students who, um, who want to attend Bowdoin and who will need that support if they do come. That's great work from both of your groups. I'm very impressed. Something, something else that I'll just add that I think relates to the work that NASA is doing is that being all in different places on different land, uh, we, we started off our semester with a like big meeting of Sunrise and just we did like a land acknowledgement and had people go on to their own like and see where they were and whose land they were on. Um, and I think that there was opportunity and when we talked about like different different peoples where people are coming from and not being on the same land and being kind of spread across the country in a certain way, I think was really insightful because it shows just the how much how how colonial we are and how like spread out we are and and then we were able to have more conversations than just we would have been able to do if we were all on Bones campus I I mean I also think that just like psychologically and, and philosophically being spread out and like almost having less ties to like the land or where you are right now because we're interacting through zoom so much is it shows just how important it is to like have land, have a have your own space and like have autonomy in and like a sense of place, I think, and really tied to that and, and that it just shows how important like land sovereignty work is. And I think that we, we also had conversations about that. So I, I think that there's through the challenges, there's like you you can understand certain things or have certain connections that you wouldn't before. Uh, and I think that we had, we had those conversations about kind of how the platform impacts how we think about certain things too, which was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think you really hit the nail on the head, Leaf, because land is connected to Indigenous identity in every aspect. Every issue that Indigenous people face today, murdered and missing Indigenous women, exploitation of land, lack of health care or quality health care is all connected to land exploitations, uh, land stealing, and the original, what well, I guess you could call the original crime of colonialism in America. The way that we can really heal those wounds is by returning land back to indigenous sovereignty, ultimately. And that's gonna take a long time. Um, it might take a short time in some cases, but I think when we're trying to see in the picture, bigger picture, justice coming to fruition, we, that, that's why it's so important that we have Indigenous people in policymaking, that we have allies and supporters, and we can build those connections with people who shared our interests. Speaking of those people who are advocating for different issues on land, we're wondering if you can talk a little bit about the similarities between issues and political debates that are going on in, in your home communities, and the same if there are any similarities between what's going on in Maine. Well, actually, there's a really interesting connection between um, the Emerald Ash Borer in Wabanaki land and in Haudenosaunee territory. So there's this invasive species of insect called the Emerald Ash Borer. I think many of you have heard of it before. And it's uh, really negatively impacting um, lands in Wabanaki territory right now because it's destroying uh, this type of tree called the white ash. And uh, white ash is really important for Wabanaki basket weavers. It's the primary source material 
that basket weavers use to make uh, these incredibly intricate, creative uh, pieces of art. And without white ash, uh, it's really difficult to make or to continue that tradition that's been around for millennia. Uh, and we're starting to see the emerald ash also invading Haudenosaunee territory, which is just to the west of Wabanaki territory. Uh, it's actually kind of funny because traditionally Wabanaki and Haudenosaunee people never really got along, were uh, enemies of each other. There's uh, even a time when I was at the Common Ground Fair and I was talking with this Wabanaki basket weaver and he asked where I was from and I said I was Mohawk and uh, he, he got a little salty with me and uh, he said oh you're Mohawk eh? And then he was like well so much for that and he walked away and I was a little bit confused because I wasn't as up to date at that time about um, our you know traditional relationships so then I went and talked to some of my Mohawk friends and they're like yeah, Amanda, you got, you know, we never really got along with Wabanaki people. So that's why he's all salty with you. So I was like, oh man. Well, you know, I, I think old rivalries can change. Uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, maybe this issue that both of our communities are facing, um, especially with regards to the threat that this insect is posing to the main source material for both of our, uh, our art materials, uh, both Mohawk and Wabanaki people do intricate basket weaving could create relationships that allow us to find solutions to our shared problems. I can talk about, there's this really important environmental justice fight happening right now in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is just kind of half an hour south of me. There, the state is trying to put a bio-waste incinerator into a Springfield neighborhood that is majority black and Springfield has the highest rate of asthma of any city in the country. Um, and so this is, this is a, classic, very obvious environmental injustice. Um, and we see this happening across the country where um, marginalized communities are faced the worst pollutants and the, um, the bio-waste incinerators are always put in their, in their communities um, and the, the waste dumps. Um, and so there's a really amazing coalition of activists in my area fighting against this um, environmental injustice. Uh, and that's been really, really incredible to see. Again, this is kind of an instance of environmental groups that were historically very white and didn't interact with justice issues, um, reaching out and trying to center and, and support organizing groups that have been in the Springfield area, focusing on justice issues for a long time. Um, and I think that in Maine, we see that with the water issues happening right now with Poland Springs, um, and native issues. Again, it's, it's this understanding of the, how intertwined resource issues um, and environmental issues are with justice issues. Um, and I think that if we can reframe that and have that be the, the more kind of um, dominant understanding of the environmental movement in the United States, uh, we can be more successful in, in drawing in allies and creating coalitions that aren't just white and and privileged, which is so typical of the environmentalist movement. Both Maine and Western Massachusetts are, are examples of where I, I had hoped this would be able to play out in a, in a good way because they, the communities are fairly tight-knit and we have, we have legislatures that are fairly understanding and representative of the people. But it's, it's, it is really also incredible to see both in Maine and in Massachusetts how how much politics comes into play and how much things at the state level or in Augusta or in Boston are kind of removed from the communities and how it really takes 
good organizing and intersectional organizing to get policy uh, enacted uh, and fight against these, these sorts of dangers in, in communities that are already really marginalized. Before we do wind down and say goodbye, um, I just wanted to thank you all for coming here to speak with us today. This is a really lovely conversation between the two groups and the three of you. Do any of you have any final thoughts or any questions that are still lingering on your mind? I'll say also thank you so much, Holden and Marie, for this. This is wonderful. And Amanda and Sunshine, thank you. I guess I'm going to ask a, a question um, of Amanda and Sunshine and NASA in general, and we can, we can talk about this also in a non-podcast space, but I think that now as we're kind of, as Sunrise is, is winding down from our election work, we're trying to focus on main-based organizing and, and coalition building, um, and obviously a big part of that is going to be trying to support you guys in your work, um, and, and so I guess my question is how can environmental groups um, like us um, and within the Bowdoin context specifically, support you guys and work with you uh, because, because as we've seen through this podcast, our missions are very much aligned um, and we feel we have a responsibility to, to do that and we want to engage in that work. How can we support you best? I think one thing that would be really supportive would be creating ties with Wabanaki community members, asking them, what can we do for you? because this is a question that isn't asked enough. Sunrise is, has a growing base and with your voice and your support and just standing behind and alongside indigenous leaders, I think that indigenous movements towards land sovereignty, towards um, you know, protecting the environment and a lot of other issues that uh, Wabanaki forces are putting forward, these could be really successful. So I think firstly reaching out to Wabanaki community members and then I think putting forward, we would really appreciate your support and we're asking for uh, more help from the administration and bringing attention to issues like indigeneity. This is a conversation that we've been having with the administration, not just us, Sunshine and I, over the past three years, but since 2009 and probably long before that. Honestly, not much has changed and it's really disappointing. So we're hoping that, you know, maybe with these new changes that we're starting to see with 2020, there'll be more movement towards more representation of indigenous people on campus and indigenous issues and more willingness to engage in those conversations. And I think really, you know, just bringing it up a lot in, in conversation uh, can do a lot more than you would expect. Yeah, thank you for um, reaching out and offering to support us in, in ways that we need support. And I think Amanda touched on a, a very important idea of just bringing up the conversation because I think it's most uh, impacting when people around campus are hearing it more often because then it comes back to us. They're like, oh, we heard so-and-so talk about this issue or so-and-so was there. They did a land acknowledgement here and that, that helps us and also makes us feel good to know that things we've been working on has been affecting different parts of communities in our campus in Bowdoin Bubble. It all goes into building the network. It's a network of conversations. Thank you so much, Holden and Marie. We're really glad that we had the opportunity to come here today. Thank you. For more from both of these groups, check out events hosted by NASA and Sunrise around campus. And to learn more about the topics we discussed in this episode, look for information about Native-led organizations like Wabanaki Reach in Maine.
and follow the ongoing national conversations on Native rights and activisms. Sunrise Bowden is part of the larger Sunrise movement, and you can find their work on climate activism and justice online. Finally, keep the conversations going. It all adds up. Throughout the 2020-2021 academic year, we will be publishing episodes online at bowden.edu sustainability under the Green Tea tab. There, you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. Green Tea features interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members with a focus on sustainability. Thanks for, Thanks listening. for listening.